The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. But hindsight was 2020, and Bates began doing what he always did, talking to the neighbors, asking them if they had seen or heard anything. No one had. He investigated security there. He talked to staff members. He asked hard questions. The apparent cause and positioning of the body was alarming to me, he said. This was not a typical murder, and I had not experienced anything like this before. Academically, I was aware that these things happened. You can sit in a class all day long, but when you actually see it, it's a different ballgame. You're in shock when you see something like this. Homicide Detective Keith Bates from Dismembered by Susan Mustafa and Sue Israel. Welcome, Murder Bookies, to the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. I am your host, Jill, and this is Episode 74, A Wolf in the Fold, Part 1 of Dismembered by Susan Mustafa and Sue Israel. My podcast features the best true crime books out there, updating the authors and adding my psychological analysis. Frustratingly, many of us have no time to read, so I read for you. Trilogies expect a new episode every two weeks on the book, and in between, you can leave me a five-star review, right? <laughs> okay? All right, I want to wish you all a happy Halloween. It is my favorite holiday. Trick and treat safely. Charge up your cell phones and bring a flashlight if you plan to be out late. I want to give a quick shout-out to the game Killer Mystery. Fun, creative mystery game. It is cheaper than pizza. Each season contains five episodes, one delivered to your door monthly. And over the course of the season, you'll be introduced to the characters, review the evidence, decipher clues that will lead you to solving the mystery. Get ready to be immersed in a thrilling story. And remember, everyone's a suspect. I have a group of friends who come over for our Killer Mystery Monthly Party, and it is a great time. There is a link on my blog on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or X. And, you know, sometimes you just need a little break from reality, right? So check it out and have some fun. With the help of my Patreon group, we selected Susan Mustafa and Sue Israel's book, Dismembered, on a serial killer from Louisiana. And I wasn't familiar with this guy, so it was intriguing to learn about him and his victims. Listen, they are all bad, but this guy truly is in a class by himself, utterly reprehensible. And because of that, I really wasn't sure I wanted to do the book, given how graphic it can be. But he's a talker, and you learn so much when they open up. So weighing all of this, I decided to maintain my accuracy pledge. Oh, absolutely. But I won't be repeating the nauseating things he did to his victims as part of his fantasy cycle. Dismembered comes in at 416 pages. I believe you'll learn a few new things from this case. And finally, I'm sending out prayers to the family of Natalie Holloway. We finally know definitively 
that Jaren Vandersloot murdered her on the beach in Aruba 18 years ago. I am wishing them grace, and I am praying that Natalie can rest in peace. So Susan Mustafa, she is a best-selling and award-winning co-author of No Such Thing is Impossible, From Adversity to Triumph, written with Javiero Alvarez Botero. With Earl B. Hurd, she co-authored Rock Bottom and Back, From Desperation to Inspiration, and she wrote the true crime bestseller, The Most Dangerous Animal of All, Searching for My Father and Finding the Zodiac Killer, with Gary L. Stewart. And this was featured on FX. Susan has been on numerous television programs, which have aired on Investigation Discovery, Lifetime, and Discovery Canada. Our co-author, Sue Israel, has more than 20 years of writing and editing experience and currently serves as the Public Information Officer for the Office of the Commissioner in the State of Louisiana's Division of Administration. That is a mouthful. I can imagine what her business card looks like. They also wrote together, I've Been Watching You, published as Bloodbath, written with Special Prosecutor Tony Clayton on serial killer Derek Todd Lee. So now we need to settle in with our appetizer and drink. Perfect for a case set in Louisiana, I selected a huge favorite, Crab Meat Robigot. A huge thank you to Spoonful of Nola for this tasty recipe served cold. Yeah, it's that easy. So you need your chunk crab meat, easy peasy, you mix Dijon mustard, lemon juice, Worcester sauce, white wine, vinegar, onions, shallots, capers, and a whole bunch of tasty spices. Next, you gently mix in the crab meat so as not to break it up too much. You want to keep it chunky. And you refrigerate it and serve cold on endive leaves or crackers, which I usually choose the crackers, but the endive leaves are really pretty. And I do feel really classy with this in my hand, pinky shooting upward. (laughs) This is so popular in Louisiana, you can have it for lunch or as a snack. Now, my perfect wine pairing with my crab meat ravigot is Chateau Saint-Michel Rosé, Columbia Valley, 2022. This rosé is sweet, but not overstated. Elegant, it is fresh, with fruity notes, strawberry, raspberry, watermelon, tangerine, a bunch of other red fruits in there. A pale peach in color, it is crisp and it is refreshing. And this sweet balances the tang of the crab meat rabigat just right. I'm drooling just thinking about this. And I really think you'll like the effect on the palate. The wine also goes beautifully with light pasta or rice dishes, grilled fish, and my favorite, cheese. So on wine.com, a bottle runs for $12.99, which is a great price for this quality of wine. So bon appetit, murder bookies, and let's bring on book club. Our authors open dismembered on February 27, 2004. James Abernathy and his girlfriend, Lauren Keller, were driving around Baton Rouge looking for their lost dog. The young couple drove along slowly past Louisiana State University, and as they approached the bridge near Ben-Hur Road, they saw, what was that, a mannequin? Well, we all know the answer to that. It was the dead body of a naked woman. 911 was summoned, and crime scene tech Van Calhoun shortly arrived. He had been with the East Baton Rouge Parish Sheriff's Office for six years. 
Taking photographs, he documented the scene, collecting evidence. He had worked a number of murders, but this one was beyond gruesome. She had been posed, meaning deliberately laid out, on her stomach, her buttocks jutting upward slightly. Visible was bloody trauma to her anus and vagina. On her back were numerous abrasions, indicating she'd been dragged down the embankment. Her left arm was missing at the elbow, and a chunk of flesh had been cut from her thigh. A jacket with blood spatter had been placed over her face and right arm. A ligature mark encircled her neck, partly obscured by a large gash in her throat. There were several deep cuts where her arm had been amputated. Both nipples had been cut off. The killer had enjoyed this, and he had taken his time. Calhoun and Lieutenant Terry Felton walked the perimeter, and they spotted parallel tire tracks. So a vehicle had pulled into the field past the gate, then backed up to the incline where the victim had been dumped. So Calhoun set about making casts of the tire marks. Neither he nor anyone else in law enforcement knew that a serial killer was on the loose. St. James Place, also near Louisiana University, was the first upscale retirement facility built in the state. Once part of the Du Planier Plantation, the 200-year-old Oaks made it an inviting location, seeped in elegance and southern charm. Built in 1983, residents enjoyed dancing to Cajun music, crawfish boils, and lazy summer days. Conveniently, a Circle K was right across the street, and it was an easy walk with no gates to hamper. Seniors got their cardio walking over to pick up milk, bread, or cigarettes. In her late 70s, Anne Bryan moved to St. James Place in 1990. Stylish and secure, Anne had suffered a fall, leaving her arm and hand useless. Now, this was doubly devastating for Anne, who was born without a right hand. So now she really couldn't care for herself. This was a huge change for this independent woman, who had learned how to paint beautiful still life, played the piano, and learned to drive. Disability be damned. Born in 1911, graduating as salutatorian of her high school class, she attended LSU as one homesick 16-year-old girl. While crying to the dean one night, another student, William Paul Bryan, came by, with the dean asking if he wouldn't mind comforting the fellow student. Anne quickly became smitten, but was uncertain that William would be interested in a one-handed girl like her. Well, surprised, William was, and they went to see the film Ben-Hur the next night, which is still one of my favorites to this day. Just two short years later, William and Anne were married, with son George arriving a year later, followed by his sister, Rachel. Anne cared for the kids while Bill was working as an engineer, and she taught her children and later her grandchildren that her disability was irrelevant. A standing joke was, quote, What's wrong with you? You act like you've only got one hand, end quote. When Rachel was nine, William suffered a debilitating stroke. And for the next 13 years, Anne would care for her dear, sweet husband, who was such a comfort to her. But life changed dramatically when William finally passed away. Now in 1990, Anne had moved into her small apartment at St. James Place, with a well-trained nursing staff helping Anne to cope. 
Her life was still very good, and she was going to make the best of it. Fast forward four years to March 1994. A bushy, mustached man snuck into St. James Place in the wee hours of the night. Now 82-year-old Anne's life came to an abrupt and a horrific end, and for the next 10 years, the case would be unsolved. Another LSU student, a young theater buff, Yvonne was introduced to Norman Gillis, and they easily chatted and laughed together. On their first date, Norman gushed, quote, I'm going to marry you, you know, end quote, as Yvonne's heart skipped a beat. A devout Catholic, Yvonne's brother was a priest and her sister was a nun. With many interests in common, the couple married on Thanksgiving Day in 1960 at St. Anne's in Louisiana. Begun with smiles and laughter, they began married life. And yeah, here comes the but. There were a few things Yvonne didn't know about her husband. Born in 1935, Norman grew up in Picayune, Mississippi. His home life hadn't been especially happy. Divorced parents, he had an alcoholic father and a disagreeable mother, and he was raised at Grandma's. Not a scholar, Norman joined the Navy serving four years, but these weren't particularly happy years either. Norman had had some troubles. So, for example, in Hawaii, he was found drunk and naked on the street and wound up being sent to a psychiatric hospital. Uh, he was not allowed to re-enlist, so Norman took advantage of the GI Bill and he began college at LSU, where his grades were not outstanding. But outgoing, Norman did make friends, and now he saw Yvonne as a chance at a stable life where they would raise a family together. But he never mentioned he sometimes had difficulty coping which led to drinking, and that he wondered about his sexuality and gender. But his religious wife, Yvonne, had vowed to love him for better or for worse, and Norman never wanted to make her cry. And for a time, it went well. But his demons reared their heads, with Norman trying to hide his drinking from Yvonne, who realized that drinking Norman didn't laugh and wasn't funny and was downright mean. But then there were going to be parents. Son, Sean Vincent Gellis, was born on June 24, 1962. Sean was Yvonne's salvation, her beautiful baby boy. Hoping the baby would turn Norman around, she was badly let down when it got worse. Murder bookies, reality check. Choosing to get pregnant never improves a rocky relationship. Do the work on the relationship before considering bringing a totally helpless person into a mess. When Norman lost his job, Yvonne was forced to work with a babysitter caring for Sean. She desperately prayed that her husband would turn it around. But to her horror, one night Norman came home wielding a gun, threatening to shoot baby Sean. Shocked, who was this man she married two years ago? When Norman stormed into the baby's room, finger on the trigger, Yvonne fought fiercely and somehow managed to get the gun in her hand, fleeing to the bathroom and locking the door. Slender and spry, she maneuvered herself out the window and down to the ground. Running to a neighbor's, she called Norman's father. Norman Sr. came over and removed his son as Yvonne hurried to her baby, tears streaming down her face. Her marriage was over. 
Norman committed himself to the East Louisiana State Hospital in Jackson. A month later, he explained to his brother-in-law, Father Francis Bourgeois, that he was not going back home. He didn't ever, ever want to hurt Yvonne or his son. And Yvonne prayed she had the strength to raise her son alone. Norman would spend the next years in and out of mental institutions. He went to the VA for help and was medicated, which made things worse. In December 1969, his disability claim was approved and he checked himself out. His next stop was Haight-Ashbury, the epicenter of San Francisco's Summer of Love. Embracing the hippie subculture, he began dropping LSD, because that's going to help him think clearly, right? While he enjoyed this life, he eventually knew he needed help, and he checked into yet another mental institution. Electroshock convulsive therapy also did not work for him. Norman was readmitted to mental health hospitals 19 times over the next four and a half years. Yvonne never heard from Norman, nor received any financial support. Even without a dad, Sean was a sweet, loving little boy. Yvonne called him her blue-eyed angel. Instead of reading Winnie the Pooh, she read him Charles Dickens and Mark Twain. While Yvonne saw Sean as a genius, his school teachers explained that he was just an average little boy. It bothered Sean that he didn't have a father, and he was teased about this. But Yvonne didn't know how to explain the situation. So instead, Sean spent plenty of time with his grandfather. They'd feed the ducks, and they'd take walks to get ice cream. Yvonne would bring Sean to the TV station where she worked, and he would sit reading from one of the books that she had brought from him. After a number of lean years, Yvonne scraped together a down payment for a house in a nice growing neighborhood in Baton Rouge, close by LSU with magnolia trees. Ten-year-old Sean had a big backyard to play in, and Yvonne used the third bedroom as a library. Sean also loved Star Trek, as I do, snakes, and assembled model cars. Yvonne had spanked him once, but it hurt her heart, so she never did it again. She would ban TV when he needed to be punished, although Sean was very, very well behaved. But other neighbors had a bit of a different recollection. Carolyn Clay told the authors, quote, He gave the other kids in the neighborhood the willies. There was just something strange about him. He played Dungeons and Dragons with my son once in a while, but my daughter avoided him, end quote. Yvonne scraped the money together to send Sean to parochial school, providing him with a solid Catholic education. His grades were okay, but he lacked the motivation to strive. But Yvonne insisted her son was smart, even if his teachers didn't see it. Sean's best friend was John Green, who described Sean as, quote, a very neat kid. He was different, offbeat, smart. He had a lot more going on mentally than others. He used to carry a briefcase with a Star Trek sticker to elementary school, and he taught me to play chess. He was very respectful and very helpful. If one of us needed help, Sean was always there. If he didn't know what he was doing, he was a quick study and would learn. He also had a fantastic sense of humor, end quote. By eighth grade, John and Sean welcomed another best buddy, John Roses who confirmed that Sean was smart. The trio would go to the movies, hang out, and talk about girls. The boys would go to abandoned houses, 
thinking they heard devil worshippers chanting inside, scaring themselves silly. And they experimented with marijuana, which Sean liked a lot more than the two Johns. Yvonne never knew about these things, with Sean hiding many of his activities from her. Of Yvonne, John Green said, quote, His mom was a very pleasant lady, hardworking. She treated Sean more like an adult than a child, and it made him a survivor, end quote. Mother and son became very dependent upon one another, and she was very proud of the young man she'd raised. But neighbor Carolyn Clay was not so sure. Quote, I knew there was something wrong with him. One night, about three in the morning, I woke up to a loud noise coming from their backyard. Sean was in the front, beating wildly on some garbage cans. He told another neighbor that he was frustrated because he didn't have a girlfriend. He was prone to fits of anger like that, an angry young boy, end quote. Yvonne never saw this aspect of Sean's personality. Around Christmas 1978, when Sean was 17, grandfather Norman Sr. died. Yvonne called ex-husband Norman to break the news. Norman returned to Louisiana for the first time since Sean was a baby, and on meeting Norman, Sean was hostile. But Yvonne recalls that they talked a lot and began to be pen pals. Norman and Sean saw each other again in 1979. By now, Norman's mental condition had improved, and he was able to keep his job as a manager in Palo Alto, California. He had married and divorced again while struggling with his sexual identity. He felt terribly guilty that he hadn't been there for Sean growing up, and he vowed to make amends. When Sean graduated high school, Norman sat next to Yvonne, both beaming with pride. Thrilled that they were building a relationship, Norman decided to celebrate and got drunk, and then didn't stop. Norman kept drinking, finally being placed in Baton Rouge General in intensive care. He asked that Sean pick up a few things from the room he'd rented in New Orleans. Ever helpful, Sean and his two friends went to the room in the French Quarter, a new experience for them. Packing up his dad's things, the boys noticed photos on the end table of naked men in various sexual positions. Sean was shocked. But he finally grinned and shook it off, but his buddies knew he was upset. Sean hated that his dad was homosexual. Yvonne recalls Sean being very angry at his father, while she was ticked off that Sean had taken her car without permission. After this, Norman never drank again, completing a 30-day chemical dependency program and went back to California. His secret was out, and he could not face his ex-wife or his son. Committing fully to Alcoholics Anonymous, he prayed he would find stability in his life, and on joining the Body of Christ Church, Norman's prayers had been answered. He rebuilt his life, reconciled with his sexual identity, and eventually married and became an ordained minister. The Bible replaced drugs and alcohol in his life, and for the first time, Norman found a peace. Sean was not so lucky. His first arrest took place right before he graduated high school. He had gotten into some trouble here and there, but had never been arrested for anything violent. Sean would change jobs frequently, never sticking with one for long. Truth was, Sean didn't like to work. He preferred to screw around on his personal computer. 
And this was a long, long time before average folks owned a computer. Graduating community college, he got his certification in computers, but he'd never actually take a job in computers. Sean was still living at home, and Yvonne was happy for his company. She knew he'd grow up eventually. Ten years later, Sean was still living with Mommy. And this is a mistake. Sean should have been booted out and made to work to support himself like you do when you become an adult, in my humble opinion. But in 1992, Yvonne took a better job in Atlanta, Georgia, and asked Sean to go with her. He declined, but Yvonne agreed to keep paying the mortgage if Sean would pay the utilities. Smiling, he agreed and said he'd be fine living alone, and off Yvonne went to start her new life in Georgia. In August 1992, Hurricane Andrew hit the region, dumping water on Baton Rouge, causing flooding. Sean was so engrossed in his computer life, he didn't bother to clean up the mess that a few inches of water had caused. He just threw newspapers on the floor to sop off the water, and he never even picked up his mother's beloved books that had been floating. When friends came over, he just smiled, rolled a joint, and said, "Eh, excuse the mess, ignoring the moldy smell. Yvonne would have lost her mind to see her lovely home turned into a dump. When she called to check in, he assured her all was fine. But again, the neighbors knew better. Carolyn Clay says he got worse after his mother moved. She recounted how her son and daughter-in-law lived next door to him, and the daughter-in-law noticed Sean peeping in her window. She called the police, but Sean denied it, saying his cat had gotten into her yard. But since he had outstanding traffic violation warrants, Sean was arrested. Inside the house, Carolyn was horrified at the disgusting mess. Quote, The house smelled like pot. It was so messy, we only had a pathway where we could walk to the kitchen. There was stuff everywhere. I thought it looked like stolen stuff, but the officer couldn't do anything because he didn't have a search warrant. End quote. She knew he had been peeping in that window and hoped that he would be held for a long time, but he was not. At the Circle K, located directly across the street from St. James Place near LSU, Terry Lemoine worked. Her friend Sharon had introduced her to a friend, Sean Gillis. She thought they had a lot in common. Uninterested, Terry thought he was good-looking, but she wasn't interested in this nerdy guy with brown hair, blue eyes, wired-wind glasses, a bushy mustache, and short beard. Sharon pushed, however, and resigned. Terry figured she'd make the best of it. Sean already liked the pretty girl with the long blonde hair and big brown eyes behind the glasses she wore. They spent the night chatting between customers and found they both adored Star Trek, the same movies, and foods. Now she was interested, but Terry was still cautious, too. Terry had had some rough times. She had been married once, too young, and divorced, and she'd been hurt by a number of subsequent men. Her one true love had been Louis Michael Gar, who made her feel loved and safe and secure. After their daughter Christine was born, Louis suddenly had to leave, devastating Terry. With a hard exterior, Terry sought to mask the lonely, frightened woman within. Back in the late 1980s, she had worked at the Key Club, a strip bar in Baton Rouge known for sex workers and drug sales. Most of the clientele were friendly, but some were edgy, and these were the ones Terry kept her eye on. 
One guy, a biker with long dark hair and a thick mustache, was particularly riled up one night, giving off an air of danger. His name was Norbert Norby David Dees. He began hassling a stripper, moving too close to her, and arguing until he struck her across the face. Terry jumped in between as the stripper ran to the dressing room. Terry declared, quote, Does that make you feel like a big man? End quote. And disgusted, she walked away. But Norby wasn't done. Grabbing a pool cube, he swung it across Terry's back. Turning slowly around, she cursed, quote, Have you lost your fucking mind? End quote. Picking up half the pool cue off the floor. In a rage, Terry struck the man as he tried to ward off her blows, but the jagged ends kept stabbing at him. He fell to the floor, but Terry didn't stop. She hit him again and again and again as the patrons watched. It was rare that anyone got to see a girl beat the snot out of a biker, especially one from the gang, the Sons of Silence. The dancer peeked out and returned, and now she began stabbing Norby in his back. And then he was dead on the floor, in the utterly silent barroom. Someone called the police. March 13, 1987, Terry and the dancer spent the night in jail, after the police thanked them. After three days of investigation, interviewing witnesses, they were told, look, go find another profession. Norby's death was self-defense. And to this day, Terry carries a photo of Norby as a reminder to never, ever let a man mistreat her. All right, so that's the lesson she learned from murdering someone. That was striking to me. It might occur to me to keep control of myself and not bludgeon and stab someone to death, no matter how awful he might be. I mean, it's it's just an observation, and it's completely all right to disagree with me on this, but that just struck me as very odd. Well, with her divorce pending and this history and feeling unattractive, Terry also had epilepsy, which could manifest as grand mal seizures. Yet when Sean asked her, she agreed to a date. Not long after, they got into a bit of an argument, and Terry slapped him. Staring hard, Sean shouted, quote, Girls don't hit boys and boys don't hit girls, end quote, running from the room. Terry was Relieved, she now believed that she could trust Sean and he would not try to hurt her as previous men had. She would never strike him again, and soon their relationship blossomed into love. A tidy person, it was Terry who slaved away cleaning up Sean's house. Well, she's a better woman than I. Clean up your own crap yourself, Sean. When it was neat and clean again, Terry sent photos to Yvonne. Terry believed that Yvonne had spoiled Sean, who never worked, just drank, and fiddled around on his computer day after day. Wow, a real catch. All right, these are Red Mountains, people. Please pay attention to this. This is not a guy you want to be with. I don't care if he's got nice blue eyes. But unlike other men, Sean was affectionate and kind, calling her Honey Bunny, as she referred to him as a Starfleet Admiral. He loved her creativity and she was sure that with a little motivation, Sean would be the man she wanted. Another red mountain. You can't change anyone. Change comes from within, and even then, it is terribly hard to actually 
make change without outside help and support. Carrie got Sean a job at Circle K working opposite shifts, and their relationship deepened. The one area that left her perplexed, sex. He was hesitant, and she needed to show him what to do, although he wasn't a virgin. He didn't enjoy sex. They only had sex two or three times over ten years. Another red mountain again. This guy has major hang-ups and intimacy problems at the bare minimum. Terry would question him, and he just said he wasn't interested in sex. And it, and it wasn't her. No, she wasn't too fat or anything like that. And she just accepted that they didn't have sex. Oh, Terry, girl, get away from this guy. Oh. When they moved in together in 1995, she realized Sean was addicted to porn and had sex with himself frequently. Yep, another Red Mountain. I mean, we're just stacking the Red Mountains now. But rather than fight, she laughed about it and teased him for catching him. She did wonder what happened to him in his youth that made him like this. But he denied anything. And finally, Terry gave up. The love and friendship was enough. She could tell him anything, even that she'd killed Norby, that Lewis was the father of her youngest. And at one point in her marriage, after striking her fiercely, she had taken a meat cleaver to her husband's arm. But Sean didn't care. Terry was special to him. March 20th, 1994. Anne Bryan's life at St. James Place was good, though it was not like having her own home. She was popular, had good friends, and excelled at Scrabble. Occasionally, the housekeeping staff chided her for leaving her apartment door unlocked, but Anne felt safe. Hers was the first apartment as you enter the hallway from the outside door. Thoughtful, Anne left it unlocked so the staff weren't inconvenienced by waiting for this 82-year-old woman to get to the door. Knowing the staff might come to give her medication, she left the door unlocked and went to bed in her pink nightie. It was around 3 a.m., March 21st, that she heard a noise, figuring it was the nurse, but a male figure loomed over her. Something was wrong. Screaming when he touched her, she screamed louder as he climbed atop of her, the thick walls muffling the noise. Anne flailed at the man, screaming, trying to ward him off. The glint of a steel blade flashed as he began to stab her repeatedly, angry she wouldn't shut up. His fury grew with each of the 47 thrusts until he slashed her throat open, nearly decapitating her. Even as Anne went silent forever, the man continued the violent assault, enjoying it, relishing it. He cut open her stomach, her bowels, intestines pushing through. He nearly severed her breast, slicing her genitals, her face, and continued. Then he slipped out the door, euphoric over his first kill. The only evidence police would find was a knife and a shoe print on the beige carpet. And, quote, another clue in the room that would be overlooked for the police for more than 10 years it was a clue that would become a signature of a serial killer, end quote. Joanne Stevenson came to deliver Anne's medication at 8.15 a.m., flying out of Anne's unit in hysterics. The director ran to check on Anne, and everything looked completely normal until the bedroom, which was soaked in blood. Police were called, but they didn't tell them it was a homicide. 
because St. James Place did not need negative publicity. Meanwhile, Carrie Lamont didn't hear about the murder until she got to work at the Circle K right across the street. So police were finally investigating by 10.22 a.m. when homicide detectives Keith Bates and Donald Armstrong were called. Sliding door, no sign of forced entry, but the first officer did notice a fingerprint that had to be tested. In the bedroom, blood spatter covered the bed, hand towels, pillows, sheets, and blanket. Lying on the floor, leg draped over the bed, the other leg bent, the killer had left Anne so she would be exposed like this. The gaping breast wound hadn't bled, so that had been inflicted after death. Turning away, feeling sick, they noticed the two bloody footprints. Homicide detective Keith Bates was totally unprepared for what he saw. The tall, handsome black man had five years' experience, but this crime was more gruesome than most. Later, Detective Bates mused that he was not really fully prepared to investigate this case. Oh, he followed the playbook. Canvassing the neighbors, he learned that no one had heard anything. He checked out security. Staff didn't have a clue. Crime scene techs processed the bedroom. No semen was found. Rape and robbery were not the motivation. This killer just wanted to kill and maim. And the fingerprint came back unidentified the knife and the footprints yielding no clues. For the next ten years, Anne's daughter Rachel and her family would search for the man who had brutally taken Anne's life. In 1997, the family offered a $15,000 reward for information leading to arrest, and they hired a private investigator. For five years, Sean and Terry lived a normal life, curling up on the sofa to watch Star Trek together, although Sean spent an inordinate amount of time on his computer playing Donkey Kong. She'd complain and urge him to come to dinner to eat, and it was really the only thing they ever thought about. Sean managed to help mend the distance between Terry and her children and celebrated Christmas with gusto. They'd attend Renaissance fairs, with Terry making them bright costumes. But one time, Sean called Terry over to show her what he found, a website of dead women. Terry thought it was sick with Sean laughing. He waited for her to go to work before returning to the site. He drove Terry to and from her job since she couldn't drive due to her seizure disorder. So this kindness was appreciated by her. Quote, she was unaware that he had a dark secret, a side that she never saw. For her, theirs was a happy family, the family she had always wanted. Sean gave her stability, peace, and love, it was all she needed, end quote, for five years until he got bored. Susan Mustafa and Sue Israel describe sections of Baton Rouge having historically significant buildings, such as the Pentagon Barracks built in 1825 to the 1930s State Capitol, Riverboats, the Hollywood Casino, and the Belle of Baton Rouge. Life was good with well-lit streets, luxury apartments, businesses, and restaurants. But once you crossed Interstate 110, you found the unsafe areas laden with sex workers on crack and a struggle for survival. Many of those selling their bodies once had normal lives, families, and jobs. Drugs changed all that. Quote, sex was a competitive business, 
and hookers had to work long hours to get as many Johns as they could to make enough money for drugs and food in that order. Sex comes cheap on these streets, sometimes for as little as $10 for oral, which isn't enough to feed habits that have grown through the years, end quote. The Baton Rouge Police Department did try to address the problem, but there were not enough resources to eliminate this way of life. If a sex worker goes missing, lips tighten up. No one sees or hears anything. If anyone does notice a prostitute missing, it's her pimp. So after dropping girlfriend Terry off at work, Sean Gellis liked to drive these streets. He would choose one of the girls standing out there and fantasize about what he liked to do to her. His growing excitement was not about sex, but about death. Victimology alert. Gellis likes smaller women that he could easily overpower, and a bigger woman what was just too hard. It had been five years since he first felt death, five good years, but the craving was strong to feel alive and powerful. January 4th, 1999, Sean Gellis spotted Catherine Hall. She existed on these squalid streets, waiting for men, ready to trade her body to feed her addiction. Petite, the 30-year-old black woman felt safe, cautiously stashing her supply of drugs. Smiling, Sean pulled over to a deserted spot on River Road. He appeared to be a harmless, nerdy white man with a $20 bill. Easy, this wouldn't take long. Catherine hopped in the car as he leaned back, servicing him. Then he took out a zip tie, securing it around her neck, and he pulled tight, but not tight enough. Frantic, alarmed, Catherine fought, grabbing the door handle and jumping out. Madly, she ran across the field, praying someone would hear her screaming. He tackled her, striking her, stabbing her through the eye, the breast, the stomach, the genitals. She fought hard, but Sean was stronger, and he ended her by slashing her neck. Dead, his fantasy would begin in this dark, deserted field. He was all powerful now. Stripping her, he butchered her arm, slicing shoulder to hand. He made a circular cut around her breasts, stabbing at her torso, cutting off an eyelid. Flipping her over, he abused her body more, tearing it open shoulder to knee, splitting open her leg. After 21 stab wounds, he was finally spent. He hung her jacket on the fence and slid Catherine's body into the passenger seat, heading for the car wash. There, he laid her on the ground, in full view, by the way, and scrubbed the inside of his car. No one saw anything. According to the FBI Serial Murder Pathways for Investigations, only 44% of serial killers kill, then transport their victims elsewhere. 15% of organized killers, who plan their crimes in advance, clean up the crime scene. They don't want to be caught. And this characterizes Sean. As dawn broke, Liddell Blakes headed down toward the 60 acres he leased to check on his cattle. He noticed something hanging on the gate. It was a jacket, and he found an ID for Catherine Hall in the pocket. Then he saw nylon zip ties and got a bad, bad feeling. Trusting his gut, he called the police. Not far from Liddell Blakes, the East Baton Rouge Parish bordered on the more rural Ascension Parish. 
In 1999, new, lovely developments were going up at moderate prices along tree-lined streets. That morning of January 5th, Herbert K. Jones was squirrel hunting, not far from the construction site, knowing that his hunting days were numbered. Walking along, he saw something by a backhoe. Shocked, it was a nude body of a black woman right next to a dead-end sign. Dead-end sign? Yeah, dead-end sign. That's where you put the body. Herbert called 911. Deputy Mark Sturgis was dispatched at 4.54 p.m., with first responders filling him in. Little evidence was identified, but the many wounds and lack of blood indicated that she had been killed and then dumped here. Ligature marks on her neck matched the zip ties that Liddell Blakes had noticed. It turns out the cause of death was exsanguination from her severed jugular vein, and with those insights, Catherine Hall's case would go cold. A decade later, a pubic hair in her mouth would link her death to a serial killer. Early Sunday morning, May 30, 1999, Hardy Mosley Schmidt woke up ready for her morning run, relishing the quiet. At 52, she had run the Boston Marathon and was in good shape. Well-respected, well-off, Hardy had a wonderful husband, Bob, who was an attorney, and three children she adored, Estelle, Joelle, and Robert. Her father was a family court judge, her sister, also named Joelle, her best friend. A stay-at-home mom and wife, she was devoted to her family. That morning, she passed out of the stylish manicured lawns with the magnolias in bloom, heading down towards heavily traveled Perkins Road. Quote, what she didn't know was that a man had seen her running there three weeks before and had come back to the neighborhood on numerous occasions, hoping to spot her again. Sean Gellis couldn't believe his luck. Terry was still at work, end quote, and he had at least two hours. And there was the pretty blonde again. He knew he had to be fast. It was 5.45 a.m. Spring morning, people would be getting up soon. So, Sean drove his car into Hardy, knocking her into a ditch, stunning her. Jumping out, a zip tie was wrapped around her neck, and Hardy died. He picked her up and put her in the car. Looking around, no one had seen anything. He needed a secluded place, and Breck Park came into view, and it was perfect. Stripping her body, hunger surged in Sean, and he raped the dead, leaving semen behind. Finished, he put her in the trunk of the car and went off to pick up girlfriend Terry, and she suspected nothing when Sean pulled into the Circle K. Bob Schmidt became concerned when Hardy didn't return from her run. Knowing her routine, he drove around hoping to find her talking with a friend or something, but nothing. Now something was wrong, and he called the police to report her missing. Terry wanted to know what that horrible smell was. Oh, oh, I ran over a squirrel, Sean told her. No worries, honey bunny, I'll take care of it. Skipping the car wash. Hardy's remains were dropped in a New Orleans bayou, specifically so the Baton Rouge police would not work the case when she was found. And her body was found the next day, with Bob Schmidt becoming the prime suspect in his wife's murder. 
Late in November, Sean's fantasies darkened as he thought about death and dismemberment daily. After dropping Terry off from work, he would troll for the perfect victim. On November 12th, he headed towards Scotlandville, where Southern University is located. A black woman in a flowy nightgown crossed the street, and she had lovely legs. Sean stopped now, chatting with Joyce Williams. A veteran of the streets, this geeky white boy looked harmless, and she got into his car. He drove to a secluded place where the sugar cane hadn't been harvested. Both needing to urinate, they exited the car, and Sean launched his zip-tie attack as she began kicking him. He pulled it tight for two or three minutes until the flailing ceased and Joyce died. Sliding her into the passenger seat, he secured her with a seatbelt. This time, he took the victim to his house. He didn't need to go get Terry for hours. Her legs were beautiful, and he meant to keep them. Getting a hacksaw, he got one, but the blade broke on the second. He resorted to using Terry's fillet knife, knowing it was razor sharp. Still difficult, he decided to go for the head instead. A bloody mess, he sopped it up with paper towels when he was done mutilating. Quote, it wasn't a sex thing, Sean wrote. It was a mind thing. It was more just to see what it was like. I didn't, you know, get off. And then I put my penis in her mouth. She had lovely legs, like Terry, end quote. So it's not a sex thing, but he's putting his penis in her mouth. Okay. But this time, Sean was curious, and he raised the ante. He cut off her nipples and crossed into cannibalism. Body parts were then stuck in a large trash bag, then a large box, and placed in the rear of the car. And he greeted Terry with hi, honey bunny, and a kiss. And Terry grinned. Sean was always so affectionate. When Terry went to bed exhausted, Sean disposed of the mangled remains at a levee in another small town, pitching each body part so it rolled down towards the river. Back home, he cuddled in bed with Terry. January 22, 2000, the new millennium had begun, but it was the same old stuff for the Iberville Parish Sheriff's Office. Captain Ernest Williams and Detective Kevin Ambo arrived at the scene where a human leg was found. Four days later, more bones were found, plus a woman's jacket. Mary Mandheim from the Forensic Anthropology and Computer Enhancement Services, as FACES, lab at LSU was called in. On February 11th, dental records identify these remains as belonging to Joyce Marie Williams. It was quiet on the drive to inform Joyce's sister, Alfreda, of her death. How was she ever going to tell Joyce's two-year-old daughter that mommy wasn't coming home? With so little evidence to go on, Iberville Detective created an information-wanted poster hoping to spur someone's memory. The flyer was distributed by fax to the East and West Baton Rouge parishes, offering a reward of $1,000. When the copier went on the blink, a Shamrock office supply repairman showed up at the Louisiana State Attorney General's office. Repair guy, Sean Gellis, began to fix it and saw Joyce's poster. Glee flooded him, grinning as he relived the pleasure he'd gotten from her corpse, making copy after copy of the flyer 
with no one noticing the happy repairman, his fingers stroking Joyce's face. A memorial service was held for the mother of two who had been loved by so many. Quote, she didn't deserve to become an experiment in a serial killer's ghastly fantasy. End quote. And Joyce's case went cold. Lillian Gorham Robinson was raised in a loving Christian family and was very close to her sisters, Patricia Dawson and Virginia Valentine. Elegantly dressed, Lillian had two children and a granddaughter, whom she loved dearly. But when stressed, Lillian would take a nip of liquor. But when this habit ticked into alcoholism, she tried to crack cocaine. Now, Lillian turned to sex work to feed her addiction, walking her beat in northern Baton Rouge. Her sisters tried to save Lillian, praying every day for her to come home where she belonged. In January 2000, with Joyce dead only two months, Lillian stopped taking calls, and Virginia reported her sister missing, a classy, petite, black 52-year-old woman. Like Joyce, Sean had taken Lillian home, mutilating her, playing twisted games with her corpse. He enjoyed feeling the dead between his fingers. As the time to pick up Terry approached, he put Lillian in the car, dumping her just past Whiskey Bay in the swamp. Sean thought she'd probably be eaten by an alligator, but luckily some fishermen discovered Lillian's body some nine miles or 14.5 kilometers away. The coroner collected evidence, but with decomposition making it difficult to identify the body. As was with the procedure for unidentified bodies, she was buried in a pauper's grave, and Lillian's head was sent to LSU for research purposes. All while, Lillian's family called over and over, asking anyone if they had found someone who matched their sister's description. As Lillian had been found in St. Martinsville, the Baton Rouge Sheriff offices were never informed, no one connecting the missing woman to the unidentified body. Well, eventually, Virginia and Pat did find out about this body and had it exhumed and then learned to their horror that their beloved and troubled sister had been beheaded on top of being viciously murdered. They were simply shattered. Now, for eight years, Sean and his buddy, John Rosas, met every other weekend in New Iberia to visit John's daughter, Christine, who lived with John's ex-wife. Close, Sean was Christine's godfather. The October 20th, 2000 weekend, John couldn't make the trip. So Sean visited Christine himself. This stopped my heart reading. They threw frisbees, played games, and occasionally smoked pot, even though Christine was only 16, which Dad John did not know. I'm sure she thought coolest godfather ever. Well, he's not. But trusting Sean, when Christine was molested, she would confide in him and he would comfort her. He adored the pretty blonde-haired girl, the daughter he never had. And you're thinking, wait, a serial killer? Well, they are not all psychopaths who can't feel compassion and love and empathy. Remember, every serial killer is unique. Well, Sean was not planning on killing anybody that weekend until he saw Marilyn Neville's, a 38-year-old white woman, 
walking down Evangeline Thruway. Stopped at a traffic light, Sean beckoned her over. Agreeing on a price for oral sex, Sean paid her $10 bill and then drove them to an isolated area. And then he slipped the zip tie around her neck, only it wouldn't lock, alerting her. Marilyn fought valiantly, kicking, cracking the right side of the windshield. Out of the car, she ran with Sean in pursuit, and he picked up a piece of rebar swinging, and Marilyn dropped, with Sean stopping and strangling her. Following his M.O., he put her body in the car, only this time he did go to a car wash, using a ton of quarters he would later tell Detective David LeBlanc. Oh, and he took his $10 bill back. Back at his house, he brought Marilyn inside to the kitchen and was grossed out when she leaked urine. He dragged her into the shower and eagerly showered with her dead body. With rigor mortis beginning, it wasn't easy to keep a hold of her or to do the sick things he wanted to do. Nor did he have time to dismember her, having to go get Terry. Wrapping her up, he went to the River Road levee, dumping Marilyn's body there. She wasn't found until Halloween by a man walking his dog. Marilyn Nevels had never been reported missing, lost in the multiple murders that happened in the region. Then Sean would take a three-year hiatus from murder. He watched as police were busy tracking down another serial killer who complicated the murder investigation into Sean's kills. And that is where we will pause episode 74, A Wolf in the Fold. Next time, we will delve further as law enforcement in Louisiana parishes begin to realize they have another serial killer on their hands and a task force gets down to business. Thank you for listening, Murder Bookies. I see you as you hear me. And my next book selection will be discussed on Patreon, first Thursday of the month, 8.30 p.m. Join us for $4 of the month. I can't wait to see you. There are so many books because I met so many authors at CrimeCon, and you get to help me pick. Please take a few minutes to leave an awesome review that will help me make new murder bookies and share your thoughts with me at jill at com or on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram. So much is happening in true crime constantly. Oh my gosh, I, I can't keep up with it all. Natalie Holloway, Lisk, Delphi, Kohlberger, New fall and winter weather designs are out on my spread shop, so get your merch and remember the holidays are coming fast. Links are on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com with sources, photos, show notes, our snack recipe, and wine too. Always trust your gut, lock your doors and windows, and I'll see you soon. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosena and lyrics by Otto Harbach.